and welcome to Podcast by Brodies. My name is David Lee, and this is the first episode in the Case Files podcast series. In the Case Files, we look back at notable court cases from the last 150 years and discover how Brodies lawyers through the ages have played their part in key legal moments. In each episode, we'll be talking to Brodie's modern-day legal experts to discover how their predecessors have helped shape the way the law is applied today. So welcome to episode one of The Case Files, a cast-iron argument, what makes a contract. In this episode, we look back at a famous case about shipping contracts, A&J Ingalls versus John Buttery & Co. It dates all the way back to the 1870s, but it has echoed throughout legal history ever since, and it still has relevance today. It's a case that speaks to the history of Scottish shipbuilding and to the principles of contract laws that are still argued about in modern day cases. Above all, it's a salutary reminder to clients about the importance of the written terms of contracts. I'm joined for this episode by two Brodie's lawyers, partner Tony Jones QC and associate Jamie Reekey. The Case File series focuses on Brodie's advocacy team. Welcome to you both. So, Jamie, let's go back to the very beginning, which uh, seems a very fine place to start. So what's the context for this case? Tell us something about the Glasgow shipbuilding industry of the time and, and what the shipping industry was like globally, how important it was. Thanks, David. So, as you've said, the case goes back to the 1870s and the contract between the two parties was made in March 1875. And this was at a time at the height of the British Empire when Glasgow was world renowned for its shipbuilding capabilities. It's estimated that between 1870 and 1918, Glasgow built about half of the UK's ships and about 20% of the ships made throughout the world. And half of the UK's shipbuilding uh, workforce was based in Glasgow. We know that very famous ships like the Queen Mary, the Queen Elizabeth and uh, the QE2 were built in Glasgow. And this led to Glasgow becoming the second city of the empire and very wealthy and cosmopolitan. And, and what do we know specifically about A&J Ingalls then, Jamie, and, and, and also what do we know about John Buttery & Co? So A&J Ingalls were a shipbuilding firm. They were founded by uh, two brothers, uh, Anthony and John Ingalls, in about 1862. And we know that the firm built about 500 ships in just over 100 years. And they were based where the River Clyde meets the River Kelvin, uh, a site now uh, where we see the uh, Riverside Museum and the Museum of Transport uh, in Glasgow. Uh, we know that the firm constructed a wide range of ships, uh, including uh, steamers, paddle steamers, and small ocean liners. And um, in wartime, they built small warships. John Buttery uh, was a shipping merchant who operated uh, in the Strait settlements in uh, Singapore. And at the time of his death, he was the senior partner uh, of uh, Sandilands Buttery and Company, uh, which was based in Singapore, and John Buttery and Company, uh, which was based in London and latterly Glasgow. And it was uh, that firm uh, that was the party to this case. We know that a company bearing Mr. Buttery's name still exists in Singapore, uh, but beyond that, um, the connections between uh, that current firm uh, and uh, the party to this case uh, aren't entirely clear. Okay, and uh, and so there, there we are, Tony. We've got a bit of historical context there. What what about the legal context? What kind of era are we in here in terms of not just shipping contracts, but the law generally and how it's applied? 
Well, as Jamie said, um, it's the height of the British Empire and the law is developing to keep up with um, commerce. Uh, and the background to this case is um, peculiarly Scottish because the type of procedure that was used was called a multiple pending, which still exists today and still used. Um, but in effect, parties had a disagreement about what was included in the contract uh, and for pragmatic and prudent reasons had agreed to settle their differences after um, the um, work had been done to the ship. Um, but what they did was they put a sum of money aside, uh, the people who owned the ship, uh, with a bank. Uh, and the bank then raised the court action uh, and the two parties then fought it out as to who would get the cash, uh, depending on the uh, interpretation of the contract. Uh, and at first instance, before a single judge called a Lord Ordinary, um, it was um, the builders of the ship or the um, parties who were altering, Ingalls, who won. Um, and then before the appeal court, the second division, um, it was Buttery who won. Um, so by the time they got to the House of Lords, then sitting in London, now the Supreme Court, um, it was a 1-1 draw. Um, so this was the deciding game uh, that parties were, were engaged in, in what was, by, even by today's standards, a very expensive contract, about £2 million worth. So that would have been that would have been a massive contract at the time, and 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 what was it? What was it all about? What was the context of what was being done to the ship? It, we, you know, it says we talked about the repairs to the ship, but the ship was being lengthened as well, uh, and the, the ship was called the United Service, I think. And uh, why do we know anything about why uh, John Buttery wanted to make it bigger? Well, one assumes that they wanted to make it bigger um, to carry more cargo, but um, the contract indicated that it had to be brought up to a particular Lloyd's standard. And as you may know, David, uh, Lloyd's, major insurers, um, major interest in uh, insuring shipping. And uh, amongst other things that were being added to the ship, including extra decks and the like, um, rather interestingly, they, they had to cut it in half and lengthen it by 40 feet. And that required um, additional plating, uh, obviously, and uh, uh, beams to, to lengthen the ship. Uh, and um, it was in that context that problems started to ar arise because um, the ship had been described uh, as being in a particular condition, which was a relatively good condition. But of course, at the time that it was surveyed, it was sitting in water. No one could see the underside. Um, so it was the the lack of knowledge of what was going on underneath uh, this ironclad um, vessel uh, that later caused problems. And do we know anything about the United Service and what it was doing? Do we know what cargo it was carrying? Do we know which part of the world it was working in? Well, we'd like to know more um, because it, after um, the repairs, all record of the, the ship seems to, to disappear. Um, I'm sure Lloyd's have probably got uh, records somewhere, but one assumes that it was a standard cargo vessel uh, trading in the, the normal sort of things that uh, Malaysia, Penang um, would be sending to and from the, the empire. Okay, um, and and what do we know before? Let's come back to the contract in a minute. What do we know about this correspondence beforehand? Because, as we know, in any in any kind of contract, there's always a lot of toing and froing before that final contract signed. So, what do we know about that period? 
Well, David, as I touched on a few moments ago, uh, there had been correspondence between parties about the condition of the vessel, and it had been represented that the condition was rather good, which was important, and that during the discussion about the framing of the contract, which importantly was reduced to writing, um, uh, words were included, um, but then struck out. Uh, and if you looked at the words that were struck out, then you would come to a particular conclusion about what the contract meant. Uh, and if you looked at the words that, uh, if you didn't look at the words that were struck out, you might come to the opposite conclusion. Uh, and what those words um, alluded to was who would be responsible if on the underside of the ship uh, plating was found uh, to need to be replaced. And the, the issue then became, well, who's going to pay for the extra plating? And that became quite a big issue because there were 240 hull plates extra that needed to replace because it was an iron ship and they were rusting and falling, falling to bits. So you could still see some of the words in the contract that had been struck out. So it's a, it's a bit like a modern day uh, contract with all the track changes left in or some of the Absolutely. track changes yeah. left in. Absolutely. I mean, in, in a sort of way, David, today we we have more opportunity for this kind of dispute to arise because, as you reference, when you're tracking changes in a document, they, the software reveals what those changes are, who made them, when they made them. And the issue here was, uh, in part, um, that you could see the pen strokes going through the words and the initialing uh, striking them out. Uh, and um, if those words had remained in the contract, then uh, the uh, repairers had a very good argument why they shouldn't be bearing the extra cost. Um, but of course, the argument was that you couldn't look at those words because they came from a moment prior to the conclusion of the contract. And, you know, was this, was this a standard contract at the time? Is this just something quite normal in the shipping world? Do we know? Is there anything unusual about it? Well, I don't think it would be a standard contract as such because these were the days before um, technology allowed us to have standard styles of documents. And um, it was not uncommon for people just to draft a bespoke document that they considered um, was sufficient for their needs. Um, so it's commendably short, <laughs> but then therein perhaps lies part of the problem. Had it been a little bit longer, um, uh, a little bit more all-encompassing, then parties might not have ended up having the dispute they did. Okay. And, and Jamie, uh, where did the Brodies of the time come in? I think they were rather a mouthful. Gibson, Craig, DL and Brodies WS, one of the earlier incarnations of the firm. Where did they come into this case? So we know that the firm's role was as agents or solicitors, as we'd uh, know them now, uh, for uh, the shipbuilders, A&G Ingalls, and that the firm was then operating from uh, Brodie's former office of 5 Thistle Street. And as the WS at the end of the firm name suggests, the partners in the firm, like Tony and I are today, were uh, members of the Society of Writers to Her Majesty's Signet, or uh, WS. And the Gibson Craig in the name was a James Thompson Gibson Craig, and the firm was something of a family affair because we know that um, Gibson Craig became a lawyer in the 1820s, but he had trained under his father, who had been a lawyer since about the 1780s. And similarly, the, the Brodies um, 
with John Clark Brodie, um, who had been apprentice to Mr. Gibson Craig uh, Jr. Um, and had become a lawyer in the 1830s. Um, and we know that his two sons, or at least two of his sons, uh, John and Thomas, followed him into the law and into the firm, uh, hence uh, Brodie's being in the plural. Okay. And, and Tony, you've, you've said uh, uh, Ingalls won uh, in the, the first round, if you like, the second round, uh, Butteries won. It went all the way to the House of Lords. What happened in the end and what were the key points of law on which the final decision rested? Well, um, the, I suppose taking the key points of law was uh, the House of Lords being the Supreme Court in the United Kingdom. Its place is to clarify the law and to set down clear precedent um, for lawyers to understand what the law is. It's got to be clear. And um, the argument that was presented to the court was that there were preceding authorities, particularly in Scotland, that said that you could look at pre-contractual um, discussions and negotiations. And uh, very clearly, uh, the House of Lords stated that you couldn't. This is why the case is important, because it clearly stated that when parties had chosen to reduce their contract to writing, that it was inappropriate to look at pre-contract comings and goings between the parties, just not allowed to do that. And the principal reason for that, and many authors give different reasons, but the the one that seems to find favour these days is that it's about the intent of the parties. If parties have gone to time and effort to reduce their agreement to writing, then one should assume that the did not intend to refer to that that went before. Uh, and therefore, you only look at the, the writing. So um, that was very unfortunate in the end of the day for um, the shipbuilding company who had to bear the extra cost of the 240 plates. And to put that in context, their legal team submitted to the court, the House of Lords, that um, it would be absolute madness for them to have undertaken such a contract because of the disastrous financial consequences. Um, but the House of Lords found that they had. Now, ultimately, I don't think, as we all come on to it, it was disastrous for the shipbuilding company, and that's no doubt because in the 1870s, um, it was going like a fair. They were probably making pots of money uh, building ships. Mm. I mean, you said originally, I think this was a contract worth about £2 million, which is, you know, it's probably running into the hundreds of millions or even into a couple of billions today. This is a huge contract of the day, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very, very expensive contract. And against that background, even the argument about the 240 extra uh, plates is a lot of money that they're arguing about. And in a way, that's why it got all the way to the House of Lords, because there was sufficient money uh, involved for these two two commercial organisations to take it all the way. Okay. And before we come back to the significance of the case, then what, what did happen to Ingalls? I mean, you've, Tony's touched on this already, Jamie, that Ingalls carried on for some time. What do we know about Ingalls and what do we know about Buttery after this case? So as I've touched on, David, Buttery, um, we know, continued to operate in uh, London and Singapore. And we know that a firm uh, bearing his name continues to operate in, in that field. Uh, Ingalls were bought out by Harlan and Wolfe in 1919. Um, Harlan and Wolfe, of course, famous for building uh, the Titanic amongst uh, other ships in Belfast. Um, they also owned a much larger yard on the opposite bank of the Clyde. And after some years decided that 
to, they would uh, consolidate their operations in Belfast. And so uh, the yard closed in the 1960s. And uh, as touched on earlier, uh, the site of Ingalls uh, Yard uh, is now home to the Museum of Transport at the Riverside Museum in Glasgow. Okay, and and Tony, why you know why is this uh, echoed so long through the ages? Why why is this case still so important today? I would suggest it's important today because of the very clear way in which the House of Lords gave the the the, the judgment, um, and. Uh, uh, it was um, one of the Lords of Appeal in Ordinary, as they're called, um, uh, Lord Hatherley, who made it very, very clear that there was just no room for doubt uh, as they saw it. You could not um, look at the pre-contract negotiation. However, it's fair to say that over the years that have followed, that's been chipped away at by some exceptions, which you know, we may come to. <laughs> so, yeah, so what, you know, when has this case been quoted, you know, relatively recent in some modern day cases? And, and, and you've talked there about it being chipped away at which bits of it have remained intact and where have the, uh, where are the cracks shown? Well, it's been um, quoted um, relatively recently. Um, for example, there's a, a case, uh, Mapani Copper Mines PLC against Millennium Underwriting in 2008, where it was um, quoted. And it's still an authority uh, and it is still the law. Um, but there have been um, chipping away at it, as I've described it, sometimes by statute. Um, so, for example, in 1985, um, Parliament passed an Act of Parliament which says that if parties um, have entered into a written agreement and that agreement does not reflect their common intention at the time they entered into it, so they've both made an error, it's mutual error, then one of the parties can go to court to get the contract uh, amended. And that facility just didn't really exist back in the, the 1870s. So you could see that um, Ingalls, for example, might have said, well, hang on a second. Um, the common intention of the parties was not that we bear the cost of the extra plating. And they might have been able to refer to pre-contract discussions to try and amend the contract to show that it, it didn't reflect their common intent. And other ways in which um, it's been chipped away at is that in, in cases involving, and, and some of these cases are as recent as you know, a couple of years ago, in the Supreme Court, um, the court will look at what it calls the contractual matrix, the background to the contract in order to interpret the contract, to look at its meaning. And indeed, um, in the Mapani Copper Mines case, um, the court said, well, you could look at the fact that words had been deleted from a contract uh, to understand what it was that parties had agreed. Now, that, in a sense, seems to contradict what the House of Lords was saying uh, in Ingalls against um, Buttery. But, of course, the principle in Ingalls against Buttery is, is much wider ranging. Uh, and what, what you're seeing, the course, is developing the law a little bit to allow a little bit of evidence about what went on in the background for particular purposes. So the the moral of the story then is perhaps for the modern day, make sure that your contracts are ship shape. <laughs> exactly, cast iron. Mm. And do you think we'll continue to um, you know to hear more of this case in future modern cases? Well, I'm sure it, it will continue to be um, cited in cases uh, o over the years. Uh, it's um, 
still referred to in all the major textbooks. So Professor McBride's um, uh, work on the law of contract in Scotland, for example, or uh, Chitty on contract in England and Wales, because because it's a House of Lords case. It's an authority in England and Wales and Scotland, although it started as a uniquely Scottish case in an action of multiple pending. Um, so it's still an authority. It's still going to be cited. Um, and I don't see it ever being overturned. It may be changed by statute in the years to come. Who knows? I doubt it. Uh, but it's not going to be overturned. Okay, thank you very much to Tony Jones and to Jamie Reek for their fascinating insights today in episode one of The Case Files. Uh, the Case Files is part of podcast by Brodies, where some of the country's leading lawyers share their enlightened thinking about the big issues and developments impacting the legal sector today and what those mean for organisations, for businesses and for individuals across the UK. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to Podcast by Brodies and listen to all six episodes of The Case Files and much more on all the main podcast platforms. And for more information and insights, please visit www.brodies.com. 